Hi, it's Salwa Khan, and on this edition of Mothering Earth, we're going to consider a new source of food, one you may not have considered before and one which will challenge you and may change the way you look at nature when you walk in a woodland, along a nature trail, or even at the roadside as you drive by in your car. Recently, I learned about the Native Plant Research Institute, or NPRI. This is a nonprofit located in San Marcos, Texas, and dedicated to promoting sustainable relationships between communities, that's us, and what they call native food resources. Well, Mothering Earth is all about sustainability, so I had to talk to these folks. What are native food resources? They're just plants that grow wild in nature. They weren't planted there by people. They just happen to live there because they like that little neighborhood. They like the soil, the amount of rain that falls, and even the weather. And they're edible. I met up with Adam Salcedo and Philip Balke of NPRI. Adam is vice president of NPRI, and Philip is their principal investigator. They see their mission as one of educating people about native edible plants. They see this as important because it introduces people to new food sources and it increases the variety of foods that we can eat. Welcome to Mothering Earth. So tell me, what, what was the reason for NPRI? It's a fairly new organization. Um, was there an area that you felt wasn't being served? What was the impetus behind it? Uh, yeah, so the impetus is our food system, and uh, we were dissatisfied with, I mean, some of us were dissatisfied with our current food system, and um, some of us saw that there are these great, um, this great resource that is nat- ed- uh, uh, native plants that are edible all around us that uh, are neglected, and some of them have been domesticated before, and we've just sort of forgotten about them, and uh, we think that we could use them. Uh, Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what each of you do. We offer a few different services. Uh, One of the things that we do is we give, we lead people on plant walks um, through different spaces around the central Texas, um, mostly in the San Marcos and uh, Wimberley, San Antonio, those in this, the general area, kind of where we live. Um, Just kind of introducing people to the wild edible natives in their area and um, teaching them what to look for um, in in order to have a correct identification of these plants. Um, Other features that might kind of give hints to where they might be as far as in an ecosystem, as far as, you know, how to identify a riparian habitat and what characteristics make up a grassland and what are the differences between the two and those all are important factors into understanding how to best utilize our natural environments to help sustain human lives. We also do research uh, into like how do you actually make these plants that are edible delicious Um, and that's a pretty important a pretty important part of food. Um, so it's one thing to say, oh, well, yeah, the, the poppy mallow or the cider are edible, but are they delicious? Uh, and, that, and if it's delicious, then people are going to eat it. That's right. We think. Yeah. Exactly. 
Okay. So uh, tell me about some of the specific projects that you've been involved in. Um, we are currently working on waiting for a batch of hop tree beer to have um, to be finished brewed. I guess I'm not too I'm not too familiar with the brewing process, but one of our members uh, asked one of his brew friends who brews beer to use the hop tree or the wafer ash samaras, which are the fruits of the wafer ash tree um, or the hop tree. And I uh, take it that's a tree that grows around here? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. um, it grows all uh, along the Balcones Escarpment um, and it's used the, as the bittering agent in this beer. So just is kind of uh, taking the steps towards developing a uh, what we like to call a hyper-local beer. Yeah. Um, so we also lead plant walks uh, in San Marcos, and we have a contract with the city of San Marcos, which we'll, I guess, I think we'll start in the middle of July um, to lead plant walks in the green spaces. And uh, we're also probably going to, to do the same, a similar thing with the Nature Center in New Braunfels. Um, and yeah, and then we've also been asked to uh, present a paper, or I'm sorry, a poster um, at an urban forestry conference in uh, in Dallas in October, just about you know what it is that we're doing with edible trees, um, and then let's see, uh, yeah, and then there's a paper with about the hyperlocal beer, um, and yeah, lots of lots of we've got our fingers in lots of places, yeah. Always coming up with new projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, on Mothering Earth, we talked. Uh, actually quite a few times about native plants, uh, but mainly it's been native plants in terms of ornamentals. So we're talking about things that are really beautiful to look at, things that we have in our garden um, that we're cultivating, but that are native and that they are adapted to the local soil. They don't take much watering or trimming and things like that. So uh, obviously there's great uh, advantages to using plants like that in our gardens. But it seems like what you're doing is taking a, I guess, more practical focus, I would say, in that you're looking at, at plants that we can eat, but at the same time, and, and they're native, but we don't have to necessarily cultivate them. So tell me about in terms of educating people about that, because that's sort of a different way of thinking about native plants. Can you talk about how you educate people about that? Well, we take people out. So we take people out on plant walks, right? Um, and this is where we take groups of five to fifteen people out into uh, green spaces or urban places, um, uh, private property, public property, mm -hmm. um, and we just walk around and 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 look at plants and just tell them the name and here here are all the uses and here's how to use them and uh, you know here are the you know, if there are any concerns, like, uh, you might confuse it with this plant, we'll tell you that. That would be very important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and we, and, you know, it's, there's also, like, ethics involved. So, like, when one of, and that's a big, big thing, you know, one of them is that you should never eat a plant that you don't know. Can we sort of pretend we're on a, a plant walk and tell me some of the things um, that you would tell your the people that are going with you, 
What kinds of things would you be looking for? What kinds of things would you be telling them? So I would begin by saying, hi, my name is Sauce, and I will be uh, your guide into the wonderful world of plants. Um, and we're going to talk about plants that, that you are maybe, maybe familiar with, have walked over uh, and through a hundred or a thousand times before, but you've never noticed. Um, and, they, and they want to be your friends. Uh, and, and that's good. You should be their friend. Uh, and, they, and sometimes you can eat your friends. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, um, you know, I just, um, I get really, really excited about a plant. Like I, I usually, you know, when, when, before I go out, uh, before I lead a plant walk, I'll go out and, and scout, you know, the area and, and, uh, see what's out there. But oftentimes I don't actually know what I'm going to stumble upon. And so it's, it's kind of this really great, like you know, because the plant walkers don't know what, what they're what they're gonna find, and 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 sometimes I find something that's really cool, and I get really super excited about, it and, and um, uh, yeah, it's it's a really wonderful, yeah, it's just wonderful. <laughs> Part of what we'll teach on the plant walks is um, taxonomic names for leaf shapes and things like that. Yeah. We'll teach you how to identify. Um, what an actual leaf is com as compared to a leaflet, which is a, so leaves will grow in either a simple or compound um, shape and compound leaves can actually become quite complex. Mm -hmm. And so knowing how to identify what a leaf is and a, what a leaflet is, it becomes really important when making a correct plant identification. So we'll give, we'll teach you how to do those kinds of things. We'll teach you the basic skills that you would need um, in order to use a plant, a taxonom taxonomic plant key, um, which is basically just a giant encyclopedia of plants that's uh, kind of like a create your own storybook where you start off with your plant sample and you dig through, uh, you follow this key down the, down the different choices that you make is does this is it a simple leaf is it growing yeah. uh does is the leaf margin complete is it serrated go through that and then eventually you'll find the plant that you're looking for and make a so we'll teach you those those sorts of things and what to look for in order to make a positive id are there other things that are important for example let's say we see a particular plant is is it uh, in depending on the plant, of course, uh, are there particular times of year that you would want to pick that or, or, or pick it at a particular stage, like when it's very young or, you know, things like that? Are those kinds of things important? For certain. Um, so there are plants that don't grow uh, at certain times of year. There are, th there are plants called spring ephemerals that will only grow uh, in, a, in a couple of months during spring. And within that period, that very short time of their life, there's going to be a peak uh, harvest period. And so, you know, some plants you may, there only may be like two weeks in the year that they're going to be, you know, really prime, uh, prime plants to pick. Um, and then there's, I mean, so there's like plant parts. Um, so there's something called meristematic tissue, which is basically just like the baby part of a plant, the new growth. And you always, when you're eating like leafy stuff, 
you always want to pick the baby stuff because as my friend says, my friend Ellen says, uh, babies always taste the babies taste the best. Um, uh, and so, so, so the plant, so the meristematic tissue is like, is undifferentiated. And so it's, it's, um, delicious. It's, you know, full of yum. Uh, yeah. So in addition to deliciousness, are we looking for nutrition? What kinds of nutritional, are there any sort of nutritional powerhouses out there in terms of wild or edible natives? Yes, they're all, they're all powerhouses. Um, And it's a funny thing. So I actually get this question a lot and I don't, uh, it's a little bit hard for me to answer because there's just when you look at the side by side comparisons of wild plants and plants that you find at the grocery store, plant you know plants at the grocery store travel you know I don't know maybe sixteen hundred miles uh, before they get to your plate, um, and they sit there for days and 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 uh, uh, you know that whole time their uh, their nutritional content is depreciating. But a wild plant, uh, y- you know, you 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 pick it right outside your front door or or down the street and you eat it with within seconds or with or within hours um and um also plants that uh plants that grow in kind of harsh environments have to deal with a lot more stuff so they have a lot more um phytochemicals uh which which give us a lot of benefits um so yeah and and then are there any concerns in terms of, uh, you know, because these plants are growing out in the wild, that they may be, uh, you know, soaking up pesticides or, I don't know, stuff coming in from neighboring ground or things like that? What would we... It is important to be aware of where you are harvesting uh, the wild edibles, any, any sort of wild edibles, whether it's plants, fungi, even deer and uh and wildlife um because those sorts of contaminations can and do happen but what the beautiful thing about uh really healthy soils and ecosystems is they have an amazing power to filter out a lot of those things or bind up the the nasty heavy metals or toxins and whatnot either break them down completely or bind them up into tissues that we wouldn't normally consume mm-hmm. so that's one argument for having good riparian buffers along or buffers along roadsides and then also to not go harvest close to agricultural fields and roadsides and so mainly it's being aware of those types of situations will mitigate those problems most completely I would guess then part of what you're educating people about is not just what to pick, but where to pick. Yes, um, in a lot of in, that is very true, um, but that kind of gets into a little bit of a tricky area because um, a lot of public spaces really don't like people to go harvest, um, mainly because they're afraid of people uh, exploiting the situation and taking too much. That's part of what our organization is trying to help educate people on how to harvest from areas without damaging the future populations or existing populations. But um, we would also really like uh, a big part of what we are trying to do is uh, 
reach out to private landowners in hopes to build relationships so we can kind of we can get people out foraging in private space in, on private land because so much of the world or so much of the land in the in Texas is privately owned there's really i think it's like one less than or 1% of Texas land is publicly owned so it's almost it will, it's impossible for the general public to make a subsistence off of what land they have access to. So we are hoping to reach out to landowners and get them to have this dialogue with us and kind of hopefully move the direction to where people can enjoy all the spaces around us and with respect to everyone involved too. It's not just, we don't want to, you know, we're not just asking to traipse through people's land. We want to, be out there and engage with it and interact with it in a very, I don't know, loving way. And so uh, what you've just referred to sounds like a sort of a ethical or a set of ethics related to this whole idea of going out and foraging. Yes, um, and is that part of what you, is that uh, like a formal sort of part of what you teach or? Um, it's definitely it just... what we're in the process of developing. Uh, we have we're still in working on developing our class structures, but that's definitely something we're going to be tackling. But that almost exists more in the realm of public policy debate than <laughs> than in the classroom. Um, but we're that's part of what our organization is about: is setting up situations so those dialogues can happen and doing it in a way that is productive and not trying to perpetuate the cycle of blaming of that tends to stall these sorts of environmental issues. So as you know, people often refer to what, you, uh, what we've been talking about as foraging for wild plants. Mm -hmm. and, and I know we've used the term here perhaps loosely, mm -hmm. but I understand that uh, you sort of have a different uh, take on it. And I wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so there, there is no wild space anymore. Um, uh, Wild means that uh, there are no humans and that it's not managed by humans. But um, every place on the earth is managed by humans in some way, even if we're not aware of it. Um, so so to, to say that you're harvesting from the wild doesn't... There is no place that you can do that. Um, but if we're successful in, in our mission of you know, education, domestication, and incorporation, what we will do is uh, get people to realize that, uh, that, they, that, you know, that they have this profound uh, relationship already with the entire world. Um, and in that, you know, when that happens, then, then, uh, then wild ceases to exist. I was wondering, could you could you call these plants um, uncultivated, since we're not actually formally, you know, growing them in our gardens? They're just out there. Yes, actually, uh, the USDA has an interesting um, take on on the word cultivated, and it's about um, lock-in uh, appropriation. And so, if you have a, you know, a wild plant, and you apply your labor to that wild plant. Um, then all of a sudden, uh, so applying labor means like pruning it or mulching it or counting it, you know, taking inventory. Then all of a sudden the wild plant becomes 
a cultivated plant and you are uh, no longer a forager, you're a farmer. Um, and that's an interesting thing. Um, so ma- maple syrup is actually produced that way still. You just find a maple syrup tree, a bunch, and a, ma- a bunch of maple syrup trees, or it's uh, actually sugar, sugar maple, Acer saccharum, um, which is a northern tree. Uh, if you find a grove of those, maybe on your land, they call that a sugar bush. And then you tap those trees, and then you boil the So you're the not sap. cultivating the tree, you're just going out and finding it, Well, in a way. Yes, until you tap them, and then you're applying your labor, and then it's cultivated. Oh. So it's a funny thing. Yeah. I think one <laughs> thing that we try to, to get, our, one of the ideas that we try and get across with some of our education is that we or trying to incorporate more wild plants into cultivation. So, it, like, for example, applying um, production pruning techniques to a Mexican plum that is particularly nice, has particularly nice fruit, in order to use that edible species in order to produce a large fruit. Like, So combining the wild foraging with the the cultivation and horticultural techniques and kind of revitalizing that. So there's a lot of anthropological evidence for native peoples doing those sorts of things, manipulating plants in order to obtain a yield from them in the future, all around their environments throughout history. So we're just trying to kind of reawaken that in, in the current paradigm. This brings to mind something that I found uh, recently at a at a plant nursery. I have a vegetable garden, and I found uh, lamb's quarters, which, as I understand it, is considered a native or wild. Yes, yeah. in that in that term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, so now that I'm growing it in my garden, it's a cultivated plant. Yes, if you're okay. if you're caring for it, it's it's cultivated. <laughs> Um, so now, uh, one of the things I read on your uh, website, which we'll talk about later, is mm-hmm. food security. So how does that relate to what we're talking about here? So, yeah, food security is the ability of, uh, or the state of people just having food. And so if people know about the food that is around them, um, you know, growing in, in their front yard. Um, that they didn't know about previously, uh, they all of a sudden have greater access to food. So they automatically have a, an enhanced food security. Uh, and there's a lot of hungry people, um, even in Texas. Um, it's, it's a sort of thing that goes unseen. And we don't like to talk, talk about it. Um, but uh, this is an easy way to address, address that. A lot of the current industry technologies, such as flour mills, can be adapted to handle the sorts of materials that can be grown and obtained from wild plants. For example, creating flour out of acorns. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch for a factory that mills wheat into flour to make a few adaptations to machinery in order to handle the processed acorns to to make essentially the same material but out of a perennial uh, plant instead of an annual plant that requires a lot more investment as far as energy, um, chemicals, and fossil fuels um, than a perennial tree would. 
I wondered if you could each tell me a story about some wild plants that you found and ate or prepared in some way. One of my favorites is, uh, doesn't take much preparation or anything, but it's actually the Smilax bonanox or any Smilax species. It's the green briar, the one that everyone hates. It's the, it grows, it's a vine, it has the prickles on the sides. Uh, everyone hates it because it gets into these nasty thickets. But when you catch it when it's a young vine and right at the very end, that, ver that meristematic tissue that Adam mentioned earlier, you just pop that off and eat it and it's delicious. It tastes kind of like peas. Um, so so I, you're talking I, about the new growth when yes, you, the tissue that you mm -hmm. described. And so I nibble on that all the time when I'm out hiking. Uh, one of my favorite um, experiences with a wild food was with the Mexican plum, actually. There's, a, there's an enormous Mexican plum here in San Marcos. Um, and uh, uh, there's a lot of them, but there's one in particular with very, very tasty fruit. And I, this was a couple of years ago, I collected a whole bunch of them and I boiled them down and I made, yeah, I made jelly with them. And I, I didn't add pectin at all. I just basically made like a fruit butter. And I did have to add sugar because it was, very, it was, it was pretty, fairly tart. Yeah. But, um, but the flavor, like, oh my God, it was, it was delicious. And I gave it away to friends. I put them in little tiny jars, you know, so I could give it to away to the most number of people. Now I understand you also have a list of what you call sexy plants. And so tell me about these plants and, and what, what does it take for the plant to get on your list? Okay, yeah, so they have to have uh, several characteristics. So a sexy plant is, is what we, we um, call like the low-hanging fruit of this you know, field. Um, and low-hanging fruit, I mean uh, things that are, are ripe for you know, bringing to uh, people and bringing to market and bringing to farms and, and bringing to gardens and stuff. So they have to taste delicious. Um, and they either have to taste delicious raw, like right off the plant, or can be made to taste delicious with, with pretty minimal processing, with, with you know, a very simple process like boiling it or drying it, um, making a tea out of it or something like that. Um, the other, another characteristic is that if it's, um, if it was at any time in the past domesticated by a, another people, like for example, the Chickasha plum was, uh, or the maypop was, or the uh, little barley was, and then there's there's some others too. Um, then it automatically makes a list because it, it's already got in. You know, maybe it's not domesticated anymore, but it's 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 been domesticated. So in it has its, sort of a track record. Yeah. Of being used yeah. Yeah. As food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also, if it if it fills a culinary niche that people are familiar with. So for, for example, cherries. I mean, cherry is a pretty sexy fruit. And we've got a native cherry, the escarpment black cherry. Um, so that makes the list. Um, apples. Apples are delicious. Everybody knows apples. We've got a native apple, the Blanco crab apple. Boom, makes the list. Um, so yeah, these are, these are the characteristics. There's no question but that we're limited by culture to what we should eat. 
Are weeds and wild plants part of your menu? Well, maybe you'd like to broaden your culinary horizons. So you could go on a plant walk or learn more at nativeplantresearchinstitute.org. That's nativeplantresearchinstitute, all one word, dot org. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan for Mothering Earth. Thank you.